Code Fun Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash remote ruby. This is Remote Ruby. Have you any remote idea to the meaning of the word? Hey. Hey, hey, hey. What's up? <laughs> What's up? It's just us this week. It's old. It's old school. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's been an interesting week. I mean, we were selling our house, buying land to build a new one. What a crazy week. But then, you know, on top of all that, we got to secure our hey email addresses, which is, you know, a big deal. So yeah, that really makes me excited for for Rails 6.1. I'm I'm hoping that I, I would assume that all this stuff is going to be extracted for Rails 6.1, don't you? I don't know. They were talking like the Rails 6.1 push is very soon. I don't know how fast they'll get the other stuff out with it, but mm. I would sure to see it. Yeah. And it may be more minimal stuff. Like they can release the new stimulus separate from the Rails release and whatever, but I feel like the Turbolinks changes would affect scaffolds and those things, or just maybe, maybe it's just the Turbolinks Rails gem is the only thing that's really affected, you know? So possibly it will be less changes, but I know they said there was the internals of action text and I'm sure action mailboxes improved a lot too. So yeah, Hey has been just really elegant to use. I like all the keyboard shortcuts and stuff. I was poking around. It looks like they're using the GitHub hotkeys JavaScript library for that. Probably works on the mutation observers or whatever. That's a lot of fun. That stuff is really cool. Yeah, I like using it. I said, well, so I got my invite, I guess, Monday when invites were going out and... I forwarded my, well, I didn't even do that. I just let it sit for a day because I was like, I don't really want to go through all the work of forwarding yeah. email and figuring this out. So Tuesday morning I did that and I like feel ridiculous because I pay for fast mail to use a custom domain and all <laughs> it's doing is archiving emails and forwarding them to Hey, uh, <laughs> which I will also probably be paying for. And so I'm excited for custom domain support, but everything else has been pretty cool. I said in work the other day, I think the thing, I noticed the most about using it by like Wednesday was I really don't care about the majority of the emails I get. Yeah. Now that they are starting to kind of on their own go to like the feed and the paper trail, I check my inbox. I have nothing new. So I'm not distracted. Mm. Or like before, even though I didn't really at four o'clock every day when the daily Memphian emails me all the news stories from the day, I do want to read that. I don't want to read it right then. But I'm already distracted because I saw it. Like I've already lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so your brain went down that that route already. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I haven't forwarded my Gmail over yet because the way my my email is Go Rails and any of my other addresses go into they all get forwarded to my my Gmail account, and then I have it set up to like auto reply from if you email Chris at Go Rails, it'll reply from Chris at Go Rails. And so I should, you know, maybe, maybe I'll keep that and just have the regular exit three stuff go, you know, forward over. And, and cause that like the clips and those other, you know, features like the feed are really, really slick. And there are things that you would be forced into writing labels and 
things in, in Gmail, but it's not, it's not that organized. And I really love the like, okay, you got an email. There's, don't worry about it. We'll just keep it. You don't have to archive it. You don't have to organize it after you've read it. You're done. You go back to the inbox and, you know, look at the next one if you want. You don't have to. And there's, it's funny because like the, the tab in Chrome, and I'm like, how many unread emails do I have? I don't know. Where, where can I find this info? Oh yeah, it's not supposed to be there. I'm not supposed to look for this stuff. And it, it is a very calming feeling to use. It's awesome. Yeah, I like it. I keep, uh, I don't forward my work email there and maybe mm-hmm. I should, but like, so now I keep the mail app and hey, open, which is kind of counterintuitive, but I get way less email at work because I don't send anything to my work email address. So yeah. Yeah. And it's, what is it? A lot of GitHub comment notifications or anything like that, or. Yeah. I I even keep that turned off. (laughs) I'm like the worst coworker. I just get real overwhelmed really quickly when I have a lot of like notifications in GitHub that aren't related to me. Mm -hmm. I just turn the majority of them off. Speaking of that, Slack did something weird on my phone the other day. And it said that I had like, you know, two unread mentions or something. And my phone says that I have 1000 and two unread. And I'm like, (laughs) Oh God, who messaged me? And there's definitely something broken with this. Cause when I log in or look at my computer, it's just a handful, not a thousand. (laughs) That's terrifying. That's like, Hey, Go Rails and Hatchbox all went down and charged me money like for <laughs> yeah. seven years worth in one payment kind of worry. Yeah, I saw that and I was like, oh my God, what happened? And nothing apparently. So yeah, it is really nice. And I, I feel like, you know, every piece of the app is also very simple and it almost feels too simple. Like I just sent you an email and it's like, you know, th- there's nothing I have to do. I write you an email and it's done. And then that's it. It's very good with the, you know, Turbolink 6 stuff where you write the email, you get some animations, compose your new email and whatever. But yeah, it feels very single page appy in a way, but yeah. we know it's not. Right. Cool. And not only is it not, they are like touting how little JavaScript they wrote. Yeah. Yeah. 40 kilobytes or something, he said. It's crazy. Yeah. Which is, it was funny. Andrew's not on with us this week, but he was, I don't think I talked about this yet, but um, he was poking around at the Tailwind Stimulus Components library that I made. And I had copied, uh, I think, Adrian Polly's Stimulus Flat Picker package JSON to build with Webpack to release the the library on NPM. And he was like, yeah, do you realize that you're when you're publishing to NPM, the package is the entire Git repo and it's like 200 kilobytes and your code is five small stimulus controllers. <laughs> and I was like, no. <laughs> and yeah, there's, you know, the build step builds as development mode instead of production mode. So it compiles all that stuff and then sends it up to NPM. And I was like, oh, that's, that's good to know. So one change of that and it went down to 40 kilobytes. And I think it's still 10 times bigger than it probably needs to be. So yeah, he was telling me like, it looks like there's something called Snowpack, which I don't really know what it is yet, but it's maybe a replacement for Webpack or a more modern 
Webpack or something. So I got to do some work and learn that. But it looks like I can probably go and grab, uh, you know, Adrian's latest package JSON and and not have to, you know, learn it too much myself and just rely on his expertise there. But yeah, I was like, boy, that is way larger than it is. And it, it, like, it's not going to deploy that big because it's just going to compile it when Rails compiles it. But yeah, pretty funny. I've been working on field help and I've been toying with putting Tailwind UI in because I wrote all of it with Tailwind. So, but for some reason, I don't know if this is normal, but when I bring in the Tailwind UI package, locally, my output's 10 to 15 meg for the JavaScript. <laughs> and like, I know it's not running purge or anything like that, but it's still like, it seems like I'm doing something wrong. I don't know. Yeah, it seems high. There may be... I mean, the thing is funny with the like color palette because it's generating font colors, border colors, background colors, you know, like every color you add is exponentially making this larger. So I know they have kind of a, maybe, maybe it's about the same, but they did expand the color palette or at least work on that with Tailwind UI. And I should look and see what it is for Go Rails because I use Tailwind UI for the the redesign of that. And I don't think it was anywhere near that big in development. It seems really large. See, yeah, I did another app and I don't remember it having that problem. I don't know. It could be a myriad of other things. I've also got my editor I use. It's the one I replaced action text with. I had to bring it in through vendor. So like mm-hmm. it's possible I screwed something up there when telling Webpack to load from vendor too. But yeah, it's just mm-hmm. odd. When I don't run it, when I don't bring in UI, I mean, it's so large, it's only like two or three meg in development. So Yeah, that sounds more reasonable. I know it's pretty big when it, you know, has not been purged. And uh, I will probably go and it's not required, but now that Tailwind CSS has the purge CSS configuration thing, it's nice to just be able to use that and rely on their regexes and stuff. But I I have yet to confirm, you know, is it that's running purge CSS, but then it's going to apply purge CSS to all of your style sheets, I would guess. You know, so if you included some custom CSS, you know, or something, I would assume it would still, you know, purge those. So maybe I can just straight up drop my purge CSS config that I added manually and use theirs, but I haven't been able to quite wrap my head around that. I was reading about that this morning because I'm using Purge CSS and I have a lot of config around, please don't purge all my styles for my editor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It will be a JavaScript. Please don't, please don't kill it and stuff like that. And I was reading that with Tailwind, you can still pass those options in. Like it just is a wrap, like the Tailwind configs are wrapper around the Purge CSS config. Gotcha. So yeah, the refactoring then for Jumpstart Pro would probably be just to strip out what I've got and just replace that with the options for their plugin, I think, which would be great. Do you know what kind of action text changes are coming? No, I don't. I believe it was kind of around the, you know, complexities of the sign global ID stuff for attachments. It seems like that is the 
probably the hardest part around it. So my guess is that it's related to that. But yeah, I, I think somebody on GitHub that works at Basecamp mentioned it offhand in a comment. And you know, there's no more details as far as I know. So we'll have to wait on that one. Yeah. It's a fun time to do Rails again. It felt for a while it was kind of boring and it's a thing we talked about a lot. And you know, it's not necessarily what I would have guessed would be the things that made Rails fun. But like there's I don't know. After working with Stimulus Reflex so much, I'm excited to see like Basecamp's kind of approach to stuff too. Like who would have thought that like just saying, hey, we allowed Turbolinks to support forms, that little sentence comes with so much complexity, I know, but it also brings like so much joy. Like, yeah. I, such a pain I point. Yeah. And it also really very clearly explains action text and action mailbox. Those are the two core features that are Hayes interface, you know? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty funny. But yeah, it, it is cool. And this is like one of the interesting things that Jason Free talked about on a podcast a long time ago, where he was like, you know, it's really great to be able to focus on one product for so long because you like really, really get to understand it. But like, you always need a different project to give you perspective on you know, something new. You need something completely different and you'll be able to take ideas from that and add it to your, your long running project like Basecamp. And so, you know, supposedly they're working on Basecamp 4 at the same time. So they've been busy. It's been, you know, secretive, but they've been doing a lot of stuff. I was thinking about that this morning, actually, how they launched Hey, I saw somewhere, I think David or Jason talked about they're working on a new version of Basecamp and they didn't ramp up in hiring either. I don't think yeah. I saw them really hire any new devs in the last couple of years, like maybe one or two roles, but it's pretty crazy how they took a team that only worked on Basecamp somehow siphoned part of it to work on Hey, while also building a new version of Basecamp. Like it's just, it's pretty impressive. It really is. Yeah, like they've got maybe, I mean, the support team doesn't work, need to work too much on the new products. I'm sure they do and, you know, are really helpful for that. But like their main jobs probably still support Basecamp 3. But their cool thing about... You know, and it's it goes against all everybody's wisdom of don't rewrite your apps, like iterate and, you know, change them. They always do a whole new version of Basecamp or whatever every four, five, six years. And Jason Freed, you know, related that to like, look, you know, every new generation of Porsche was started from the ground up, you know, not a bolt reused. And it's still a Porsche at the end of the day, but they can like rethink every single detail. And he was like, we want that. Like we like doing that. And that to me was really refreshing because there is very little of that mindset in software these days. So that, that is a thing and a plan that I have for, for Hatchbox actually. Like I want to rewrite it knowing everything I know now. Because the first version was like designed for a single user deploying an app to a single server. And now it's teams and clusters and all kinds of stuff that like are bolted on and are not the most 
they're they're not as anywhere near as well designed as I would like them to be, but I wouldn't have been able to do it from scratch because it's too complicated. But now I know all those ins and outs. And I, if I start from scratch, I'll be able to build a really like strong, robust version of it. I think that'll be really helpful. But you can feel it in hay. They almost choose to ignore common wisdom and like what people are talking about just to think about things from first principles and feels good to be in rails right now because you're you're seeing those those things come back out you know with the, the new tech that's going to be released and i i like that that's what i'm here for the like how do we reinvent things from first principles and that's uh seems rare you know yeah no it's it's exciting so i mentioned i've been working on field help and when I did that, I tried to stay as in the Rails ecosystem as possible, with the exception of asset pipeline. I just moved all my assets. Like I, when I ran it, I was like skip sprockets. Like I just want to do everything through Webpack. But as part of that, I did all my testing in just mini test, and the majority of my professional career. Well, no, my full professional career has been in RSpec, and the majority of my side projects are in RSpec. But I thought that maybe we could talk about some of the things I keep bumping my head on or things like that. Like I mentioned this before the show, like I'm really used to the goodies, the little grab bag and RSpec of stuff I can just do no matter how big of a mess I make. Like at least, I don't know, conceptually it fits. And so when I get to mini test, I don't know, I feel kind of stuck sometimes. So, yeah, I don't know. Because correct me if I'm wrong, you're mostly a mini tester. Yeah, pretty much 100%. It's the same kind of feeling I think a lot of people have when they do more Rails than Ruby. You know, you are familiar with the DSL. And then when it's stripped away from you, and mini test strips it away from you, because you basically are left with, look, really, the only thing you really need for tests is an assert. That's about it. And, uh, you know, they they kind of take that philosophy. There's helpers, obviously, you know, but uh, it is a, you feel like you are just alone in the wilderness uh, sometimes. And like, you can search and search and search and all you're ever going to get on Stack Overflow is RSpec examples that you got to figure out how to convert, you know, and that is, or, or I've spent more time just diving in directly into, uh, you know, the mini test API docs and stuff to kind of wrap my head around it or whatever. I don't know if you know either where the line is between active support test case and like mini test, you know? I've tried because when I wrote that stimulus reflex testing gym, I tried to really under support, uh, really understand active support test case. And I know maybe 5% more than I did when I started. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I, I didn't actually ever, I knew they're like very similar, but I didn't know if it was active support test case was like a wrapper around mini test or whatever. Cause when you hear people talk about, you know, using mini test and rails, it's not like you're adding mini tests. You just use active support test case. So I'm guessing it's maybe a, a little wrapper, but it may be a separate thing. I don't actually know. These are funny things. Like it feels bad confessing that, you know? like a Rails developer for, oh God, 10 years now, maybe. And I, I haven't ever needed to dive into that, you know, too much. Well, I, I think that's why I've put off this conversation 
is like, I like pride myself on like, you know, being a Rails developer, but I feel stupid when I use mini tests. And so I thought, let's just, you know, let's just rip off the band aid mm-hmm. and see what we can come up with. Yeah, that's good. You know, I don't know if I'll be helpful or not, but what are your, your kind of struggles with it? So let's start kind of low hanging fruit. So the like first like major thing you kind of like conceptually run into is like rails by default gives you fixtures, right? Mm-hmm. And factories are not first party concept in rails. And so you can use factory bot with many tests. You can use it with, you know, I use it with RSpec almost religiously. Yeah. And so it, it makes me wonder like, if Rails doesn't ship with factories, does that mean at Basecamp they only use fixtures for testing? You know, it's an interesting question. And I've blended that a bit as well. So like, you know, these fixture YAML files are interpreted with ERB, just like normal. Some of it needs to be hard-coded or at least referenceable between files if you're doing associations. But, you know, you can say, go, when you load the fixtures, go create a thousand random examples with faker data, you know? So if you want to create a thousand random users that you don't know their email addresses, you can do that, you know? You have to give them a name. So like user one or user two, you know, so on. But you can use an ERB like loop to generate stuff that will be loaded in as fixtures that will kind of do what you need with the factory a lot. But it's all like loaded into your database. So it's going to be fast, which is like the tendency that a lot of like factories end up making your test slow on accident because you don't know what's creating things in the database and when and things get messy when you got to like you got to add database cleaner and whatever. And it just kind of goes down a little rabbit hole of like, I don't know where tests are creating things. And so we're just going to, you know, clean it all up, database cleaner. And it feels like uh, using a big hammer to try and make it work. So that's one approach that I've done. Like I've tried to create fixtures that I reuse. So I'll have like a guest user or like a, you know, for if I'm testing Go Rails, I'll have like a, a user I can log in as that is not subscribed. I'll have one user that's subscribed with a credit card. I'll have one that's subscribed with PayPal. And I'll have one that's like an admin user. And I'll try and keep my tests using those same fixtures every time. And then that keeps it a bit more consistent throughout the test suite. You know, but there's some times where I need, you know, maybe to test pagination or whatever on the forums, then I can go and use, you know, a loop in my fixtures to generate, you know, a hundred different forum conversations or posts or whatever. And then, yeah, there's lots of situations where you need to control it or maybe your test needs to specify exactly what is being created, you know? And so those times, I'll either write the factory type stuff directly in the test if it's not that complicated and generate random data in the test because I'm trying to create a situation and I like my test to control all of that in a single place so that it's like the test knows how to create the simulated world that we're trying to test, you know? So then I can see that all in one place because I may have a mistake in that or something. 
And then, yeah, there's other times where just, you know, adding factories makes sense, but I try and avoid them. And that's like my kind of take on probably what Basecamp does too. you know, use factories, but know their limitations and then slowly add, you know, not generated factories or fixtures, I mean, and then go to factories when you have to. That's kind of my understanding of what they might be doing. So that's, I've been trying to just do it with fixtures and not use factories. The reason I want to use factories is because like you mentioned, those one-off cases where like you need data in a certain state. I don't know, maybe I'm too much of like a perfectionist, if you will, but like, I don't, I don't want to like, when I do that, manually create a record, right? Like say like, like just calling the model and saying dot create with the attributes. Cause like, what if I add a validation later and all those tests start breaking? Cause you know, I didn't pass that attribute into that one test. And so like, that's why I do like the factory approach like for that is because like I just have one place I update it, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee that it doesn't break other tests. Yeah. You like the sort of like if the test creates the record, then it's a bit more self-contained. Is that, right. Yeah. 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 And like using I a factory that. means that like if I'm using factories throughout my app, right? Like if I add a validation to the model, like a presence validation that none of those have, I can just go to the factory and be like, oh, give it this. And like all those tests get it, right? Yeah. You know, and I guess my example of like user who is a guest, user who's a subscriber and an admin user, those are like, you know, consistent ones that you can have. And you'll see that stuff in the in the Rails repository for for fixtures. You know, they'll have like a folder of fixtures that is, um, you know, you might have a fixture written in there that just one single test uses. And I think the way that they write it is like, you know, if, if that fixture happens to be useful for another test, great. But if your other test needs changes and you want to preserve that for the original test that it was written for, you just copy it and make another fixture and put it in there. Mm, and that makes that makes more sense. You end up with a YAML file of fixtures that are as reused as possible, but you add specific examples that are kind of related to a certain test. And then you would try to name them descriptive of like, you know, the user example is pretty obvious, but like, you know, uh, a guest user, admin user, you know, and describe like what the intent of that fixture and what it's supposed to be used for testing. Cause then you can go through and, you know, like loop through all those users and make sure that for the premium content on your site, the guest user cannot, but the paid users can and the admin can as well, you know? And so like, I might write a test that goes through those users and just, you know, checks them all together. And it's like, well, I know that this page, so I, I might write instead of maybe four tests, I'll have like one test that's like, you know, here's verify, like I'm trying to test the like before action to make sure that, that you know, only the correct users can be paid or, or if they're paid can view something. And you could do that as four tests or you could do that as like one. And, you know, to me, it's, if it's simple enough of a test, whatever. 
I'll have the assertions in the same one. I haven't adhered too much to the like one assertion per test as some people do. I don't really find that as, as critical. And it also just makes my test suite get giant pretty fast. And like, I will have a specific test for something I want to be for sure about. But, you know, if it's like, make sure that only the right users can access premium this page, then I don't mind if I have all those examples in the same test, unless they get more complicated for setup or whatever. That fixture stuff actually, I don't, it's so simple, but I hadn't thought about like, I, I guess I, in my head, I always try to like put these constraints so I can only have so many fixtures, but you're right. Like just add more for the cases I need. And yeah. then I could see not needing factories at all. Mm-hmm. Like if you went that route. Yep. I haven't had a need for factories most of the time, but you do sometimes want to do the loop of like, you know, this user should have 47 charges attached to them. But then it's almost like writing one fixture with random data on each right. one, you know, and, the, and then you end up writing because the, I think uh, the tendency with factories, if you write them in the test or in a setup block, you're kind of reinventing that every single test. Whereas in your fixtures, you are encouraged to reuse them, you know, so they're, they're kind of always there and you can always reference them. The tricky part is when you need something very similar to that, but slightly different, you have to copy and, and add a new example to your fixtures. That helped. Yeah, that actually helps a lot. That's like the best of both worlds for me. Because I already use Faker. Faker is my favorite Ruby gem that has ever existed and will probably always be. So I usually like in my factories, like for name, I just drop in ERB and like Mm -hmm. Faker name dot name. Yep. I love that. It's great. I will maybe do for admin user, admin, you know, users, their name or whatever. But for the rest of it is, it is all faker. Faker is fantastic. And that, that even helps catch bugs sometimes where you're like, faker generated something that I wouldn't have put in the fixture myself. And that's a, that's a good way to, to catch stuff. Cause, or, or it also helps you make sure you're not validating the hard-coded values in your your fixtures, right? Mm, right. Like you don't want to verify like that in your test that it's exactly the string when you like you honestly don't care. You care whatever the records email address is or the user's name. You don't care what the fixture has because when someone changes it, your test should not break. But you do have a tendency to maybe do that on accident a bit more fixtures than you would with factories. So along those lines, I guess this actually I kind of answered my own question while you were talking earlier, but I was thinking like one of the things about factories that has kind of felt weird to me coming from like what I'll deem as like the RSpec factory bot like combination, which is pretty common, I think, is that like using fixtures, I have to like have this knowledge of what the fixture's called, like in the fixture file, where like with factory bot, you just say, create the name of the what name of the factory. But now that I think about it, in factory bot, a lot of times I will actually like use traits. So like, you know, if I need a record in a certain state, I'll be like, create this record with this state. 
And I guess that's really the same thing I'm doing with fixtures at that point is I'm just saying like users with this state, right? Like, yeah, the, the examples are always bad that they generate like fixture one, fixture two. Right. And yeah, as soon as you can get away from that and write them as descriptive of like the name of your fixture should kind of describe the state in the fixture, you know, like, uh, a refunded payment, a a completed payment, a, you know, fraudulent payment, that sort of thing. Name your fixtures that. And then when you reference them in your test, it's just the same as your, your traits or your description of the factory from factory bot. Yeah. Okay. That makes me feel a lot better about using fixtures and such for that. One thing I I don't know if you ever do this kind of testing. Uh, I know it's, People think it's worthless, but like, should the should a matchers in our spec that like should validate presence of this? I mean, they're available for many tests too, but I don't know if you ever use those. Like, do you, you ever test your like certain validations or associations, things like that? Yeah. I test the validations. I test the validations like all the time. Yeah. That stuff is not great because your alternative is like, you assign an invalid value, you call valid on the record, and then you go through record.errors and the attribute name. And then it gives you an array of errors and you have to see if that array includes your message. And then your message has to be like a hard-coded or you just check for errors on that field period, which is what I tend to do most of the time. Because I will generate, so for example, uh, you know, maybe you have a an account and it has a, a subdomain, and you want to just verify that no customers are grabbing like help.myapp.com. I will either go as far as just saying, "Hey, we assign help as the subdomain, we validate, and we check and make sure that the subdomain field has errors. Any errors?" As long as it's not an empty array, we're good. That uh, will bite you in the butt as soon as you have other validations on subdomain because it might be the other validation that tripped or whatever. It's not specific enough. And you can then you know, go and make sure the string is in that array you know, and say like, uh, help is not a valid subdomain or whatever your error message is. The problem with that is you end up having to write your error message hard-coded in your test, basically, which is the thing that's frustrating there. Because if you change that text, then your test fails. But it's related, so it's not too bad, and it almost never changes once you write it the first time. So I haven't felt too bad about writing hard-coded you know, matchers and the you just make sure this array includes the string for the validation. And that's kind of what I'll end up doing most of the time. And if I had to guess, that's probably how the should have matchers ended up implementing that for a lot of cases internally. But yeah, that's kind of how I've been tackling it. I had wrote for field help. It was like back in November. So it's been a while since I've looked at it, but it was like, I wrote a custom assertion for validation. It was like asserts, there's like a cert present or something like that. Search validates presence or something like that. Um, but under the hood, that's all it did, right? Was it looked, hey, for presence, like, did I try and set this value? 
and it looked at the array. It didn't look for the message, but in errors, uh, at least prior to Rails 6.1, you could like call errors and get a list of keys. And I just looked for the, like the whatever is like can't be empty key. Yeah, I think there's no other way of handling that other than using maybe, uh, you know, it, it, it's one where it's like, it's trivial enough. I don't think it hurts to add a gem that adds those matchers in, you know, like it, it is, you're either going into errors and looking it up yourself. And if you want to do that, great. But it also is pretty simple uh, to just have a, a helper method or whatever. And honestly, I will probably lean towards writing my own helper in active support test case in like the test helper file or, or, uh, a support file or something and just do it myself instead. But if I'm going to do a lot of them and a lot of like, you know, testing multiple types of validations, then just grab a gem. It's going to save you time. You know, I don't think that one's a bad one. And the, the thing that came to mind while we were talking was like, one of the things I don't like about like mini test and active support test case and stuff is like, I really... I don't like nested uh, context blocks in RSpec, but I really miss that. Maybe like I'll, I'll have a test file for testing my episodes controller on GoRails. And I have free videos and paid videos. And so I want a section in there where I'm testing against a, you know, a paid user and a non-paid user. And I want to make sure that they can both see the free videos. So I can put that as like, a test that applies to both or whatever, but you have to define a class. So you might have an episodes controller test class and then nested in that another class that's like regular user test that inherits from the episodes controller test Whoa. class. And because the parent is inheriting from, you know, active support test case, all of those tests will run in the, from that class. So it's smart enough to look at those subclasses and you can create a context block that way, basically. And I think even you could probably define an initialize method to do any setup stuff. I believe that's how that, that works. So you don't have to have any DSL stuff. You can just use pure Ruby to, to write you know, your nested groupings. It's a little... little quite a lot, uh, I would say, heavier handed because you're writing a class and it's got to inherit from, you know, another class and whatever. But it is nice that you can still do that. But I think there's a context block like extension for mini test. And there is, yeah. For that, honestly, it's, it's too... It's too verbose to write your nested classes just to get a little bit of organization. And I don't want them in, most of the time, I don't want them in separate files. Right. You know? But you could. You know, that's another way of slicing it too. That's a good point. That was a thing I experienced. Because like with RSpec, if I'm testing a model, I'll say like describe class methods. And then that describe block is where I will write tests for all my different class methods. And then I'll have either another describe block for instance methods or just straight up at the root level. But like, it feels weird mini tests because it's just a flat file, right? Where you're like, 
testing both like scopes or class methods and instance methods. And it's, you know, I could differentiate it with comments, but like, I don't know. Yeah. It's it's not a huge pain point, but it is annoying. It gives me Vietnam flashbacks of like cucumber tests where your (laughs) file with all the matchers is just like one thing after another and you, it's, there's no organization and you can't find anything. Yeah. Those are not my favorite parts of it. I think, uh, I feel like that could be done better or like it almost those little features are worth adding. I know they want to keep it as minimal as possible and as plain as regular Ruby as they can. And it works. It's just um, for clarity. I feel like it's a little more complicated to read as a, you know, test writer. So. Yeah. So the context, like you can bring in that like context block stuff as a mini test extension. Does it then switch to the it syntax or does it, is it still like test this thing? Uh, I don't remember, you know, and that's a little thing that I, I missed the like, you know, uh, the test method I think is really nice to have instead of like define a method called test underscore whatever. It's just a, again, a bit more verbose than you really care. And maybe these are the things that like active support test case adds to wrap around that a bit. But yeah, maybe that is because I don't, I write, you know, the test, you know, in a, in a string for these with active support test case, but with mini test, I think you have to define a method called test underscore whatever. So maybe that's some of the boundaries that they made it a little bit of a DSL for Rails testing to be a bit easier. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting thing. There's a like, you know, you feel like you have to jump through some hoops to add stubs and mocks a little bit, I feel like, with with that too. Um, that's that's my next biggest thing I want to yeah. talk about. Yeah, and like the class expect to any instance to receive a method call as like really nice, but you really feel like you're just not able to do the same kind of thing in many tests sometimes. Cause you can do like a, this class stub this method and then give it a return value. And then like, that's got to run in a block. And then the block, when it's over, will unstub that and clear it out. And so that is, you end up maybe having to nest that stuff or it's harder to do that multiple times. Like if that method might be called two or three times, you know, like it's a little trickier, it feels like. And it's really hard to find good examples of how to do it because they're always like, you know, the RSpec uh, version of it when you Google stuff. And that again, you know, is one of those things where you're like, really, if you are maybe doing this, then your code could maybe be architected a little bit differently. So you could pass in things for it to make your test easier. And I'm not a big fan of like rewriting my code just to make testing easier, but it also it like does make your code a bit more modular in, in the future. You may be you know, injecting some dependency that, you know, you can use an actual code too that your tests happen to help you architect better. So 
Yeah, that one's uh I have examples of that somewhere. Like I know the GitLab here um for Jumpstart Pro has some some stubs that we do to um to do some of that for like the config. Like Jumpstart Pro has like a config object with like Stripe is turned on and SendGrid and whatever. And I've written some of those tests to say like, hey, go stub this out and we'll pretend that Stripe is on. I don't really care if it's on or not. And then I can run all those tests there. But you can't really do that because it like is a block. You can't really do that in a setup block or something where you might want to do that every time for this whole test file. It's, it's not as flexible, it seems, as our spec there. So you do, I feel like, have to go a little bit around changing that and ma- making your code work in, in the way it wants it to. So, yeah. You ever use Mocha? Yeah, Mocha's great. And that one I see regularly added to, you know, a mini test or active support test case project because I think it, it makes that easier. So, like all these things are like... I don't know. It's not uncommon for me to like reach for a gym for stuff, right? Like, I don't think that's uncommon for any Ruby developer, but I always ask myself if Rails didn't ship with this, how do they do it at Basecamp? That's like the question I always ask. Like, do they bring yeah. in mini test mock? Do they bring in Mocha? Like, or do they just use the default testing stack? And if so, how do they do that? So, yeah, that'd be, re- I mean, I think we would all love to see their gem file for, for Basecamp or Hey or whatever. That would be really cool. Yeah, you know, a lot of that, I wonder if they... They seem to be a group that would just prefer to write it from scratch, build what they need and not pull in a gem, but maybe use the gem as like inspiration on how theirs would work or whatever. Like you see, they don't want to... I don't want to deal with authentication or device or any of that stuff, you know? So that would be my hunch is they're probably building little support files or something to, to do it themselves. I think that's most of my questions. Like the assertion stuff, like I like, you know, asserts difference, assert changes. Like I use that stuff in our spec a lot, you know, the expect subject to change. So like, I like the mini tests ideology. Like I like the simplicity of it, but it's some of that syntactic sugar in our spec that I miss. So this was good though. This helped. Yeah, I think uh I regularly find myself Googling things when I'm, you know, using active support test case or mini test. And yeah, it's a thing where like I was telling you before we recorded, Julian Rubish is building uh, bettersimulus.com, which is kind of like taking better specs. That site was great for our spec examples. And like, here's a good example. Here's a bad example. And applying that to stimulus controllers in JavaScript, because it's like a very flexible tool, but how do you build good stimulus controllers? You know, you can make them composable and stuff, which is like interesting, but you don't know you can do that until you see a good example. And then you're like, ooh, here's like a ton of ideas I get out of this. So he's like putting that site together. And then 
as we were talking, I bought bettermini-test.com and I haven't done anything with it yet, but I'd like to go through all of the better specs examples and show, you know, mini test versions of them and then expand from there and show like, you know, we can talk about the fixtures and the dynamic fixtures and then factories and, you know, those equivalents of like, you know, you don't necessarily have a context block here, but you can use a class, which is the equivalent. And, you know, we can maybe create a good repository of all that because there are very few or hard to find examples, you know, stuffed in Stack Overflow somewhere after you sift through 15 RSpec examples when you search for something. So, yeah, you know, I dig it. It needs better documentation, I think, for sure. Yeah, well, we'll probably wrap it up there, huh? Yeah, no, this is good. This was really good for me. That's two weeks in a row where I've selfishly gotten a lot out of the episode. So. That's good. That's what we do this for, right? I have a lot of fun like learning about Dudier stimulus uh, reflex experiences has been really good for me to wrap my head around that. And you've published the stimulus reflex testing library, haven't you? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not perfect or anywhere near complete, but it exists. So, yeah. And that's an exciting one because we were talking about that recently, where, you know, that gem, you have written it in a way that you've got helpers that can be applied to RSpec and mini test, which I think is really cool. So, like, you know, building something that's compatible with any test suite is a pretty neat thing. And, I want to see how you did that because I think I'll learn stuff from that. Yeah, everything I learned, I stole from Action Cable Testing. I can't I think that's just the name of the library. Oh, yeah, like uh, Palkin, I think, yeah. wrote that. Yeah. It, it was written before Rails had Action Cable like testing built in. And so like Rails 6 and RSpec 4 both shipped with this library, essentially, like the code from it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is awesome. So, yeah, I hope that gets rolled into stimulus at some point. It'd be great. Be cool. So, all right. Well, I'll talk to you next week. All right. See you, man. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com forward slash remote Ruby.